Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. What would the world look like if women, mothers, and girls were centered? This is the question that my dear friend, Emily Saldea, founder of the Free Birth Society, asks in today's episode. Emily takes a look at the cost of denying physical reality and the critical role of women-only spaces for society and humanity at large. Her approach emphasizes the benefits of having a deep connection with oneself and the telling observation that when women rise, everything gets better. Despite the seemingly gradual infiltration of trans ideology into the birth world, its effects are now to the point where women willingly champion men at their own expense. Women eager to share a space with men that then limits what they say, how they move, how they behave. Emily examines the source of this compulsory response while highlighting the importance of realizing that true liberation is found from within. For Emily, myself, and many other women, preserving women-only spaces is non-negotiable. So I'm Emily Saldea. I own and, and run a business called Free Birth Society. Uh, it's a primarily online platform that is in its fourth year. That is really a giant invitation to education and support around radicalizing your life as a woman uh, with the emphasis on pregnancy and birth outside the system specifically. So free birth is birth outside the system um, in a nutshell. So I started a podcast that kind of blew up. And so from that anchor, all these other beautiful things have generated from it. So I've been a birth worker for a really long time since I was a teenager, but the short condensed version is I was a doula in the system and a midwife's assistant and for a super long time and attended hundreds of births in captivity. As I got closer to conceiving my own child, I knew I couldn't do that. I knew I could never become a licensed midwife. So I was really like, tormented about how I was supposed to serve. And then free birth came into my view. And for me, I realized that was the real answer of, of how to be a part of um, the solution and how to, um, instead of fighting against, rather how to create for and stand for. And so, um, yeah, everything really changed for me four years or so ago, um, shifting out of really trying to convince people to not go into the system where, um, abuse is rampant and where there's so much violence as ritual. And um, it's just been kind of beyond my wildest dreams of what this has become. And now it's a global movement, not free birth in and of itself, but rather the community within free birth society. Free birth has always been around. Um, again, it's just birth outside the system. So I love that, that your mission is really putting energy towards a completely new paradigm rather than, you know, trying to reform which is really aligned with the kind of liberalist feminist model, which is all about reform rather than radicalizing and, and starting kind of starting over and, and building anew. One of the things that uh, I think really resonated and, and is related to what's happening in liberal feminism and transgenderism specifically is, and you speak to this, you know, with kind of women being active participants and being complicit in the industrial birth system and how without our active compliance, it does not, it does not roll. And having that perspective and having that awareness with birth that your platform and free birth society really gave me, I was able to apply that lens to what's happening within liberal feminism, things like surrogacy, porn, prostitution, transgenderism, and how it really thrives on women exploiting other women as well as, you know, being victims um, of our oppressor sex class. So when was the first time you started to hear about men giving birth? Or when was the first time you were asked to support a trans-identified woman 
Yeah, I was in Los Angeles and all throughout my 20s. And I think it was when I founded a nonprofit that was to get women of lower socioeconomic status to get them doulas, essentially, and childbirth education. And so it was in creating that structure that I started to get whispers. It was really subtle. It wasn't like how it is now. It was like, you know, I got one email that was like, do you serve the trans community? And why does it only say woman on your website? But it it wasn't at the level of full bore harassment and threats that so many of us experience now. So I was confronted with it, but it, it didn't feel like the central focus of so many people in the, in the way that it is now. It was in my view, but I really didn't pay it much mind. And I didn't really see it as a problem either. I wouldn't say I like had fully been indoctrinated into it. I certainly wasn't using, you know, language that erases woman and mother. In my earlier 20s, I have served some female-bodied people who, um, you know, who were kind of doing their best to not identify as a woman, but still it wasn't really as extreme as that they thought they were men having babies. They were more this new, very, very, very new concept of non-binary, though using their very binary reproductive genitalia and, and organs. So in the beginning, it was really only those two people. And I just, I just kind of thought it was like, oh, that's interesting. They were very both quick to share their sexual traumas with me. And that made sense that a woman would want to opt out of language um, that is easy to kind of connect and assume, you know, and, and I, I have met trans people, identified people who are female, um, say similar things, you know, throughout the last 15 years of, um, you know, I was raped as a woman and I started saying I was a man and I experienced less harassment at work. I've been able to climb the corporate ladder. I mean, I've heard this from a lot of people that I've, that I've interacted with or, or known or met anyway. So it wasn't anything like it was now because it was 15 plus years ago. It just didn't really seem like that big of a problem. And I didn't have a scope of like the entire world <laughs> or at least, at least like the Western world of how things were shifting and how this was going to affect everything. So it had more of a, like when I served those women and they were both um, free, I donated my services to, to these two people. I'm trying to remember now because I don't think I, I opted out of calling them women. Um, they really wanted me to be present for them both, though they were like two years apart, but for the same purpose, which was to navigate the hospital system, understanding that they were trying to essentially live a different identity and that that was not going to be remotely acknowledged in the medical model. And so I was kind of like a bridge and I was happy to be that bridge. But with those two women, they weren't trying to make me change my language. It was more, it's hard to articulate. And it's like such a different consciousness than where I don't think I'd be able to do it now, but they were lovely people and they were very transparent about their trauma and kind of connecting that to their um, choices and, you know, shift of language. And they knew that, they needed somebody to help navigate the system. We weren't calling her vagina a front hole. They both did have breasts. So it wasn't like as extreme, like it wasn't like I'm a man that gives birth. And then I was like, yeah, totally. You're a man that gives birth. It, it wasn't quite that, that extreme. But those were the only two, two women females that I really served like at their actual births where I saw human babies come out of female vaginas. Otherwise, it was more kind of like the activist, occasional virtue signaling email that was like, are you going to do this? And why doesn't it say birthing person on your website? And I just didn't really pay it much, much mind. But it wasn't until I met Yolanda. It wasn't really until I met her and had 
the experience in Free Birth Society's Facebook group, which I had started quickly after the podcast. And I just said something like, this is a woman only space because duh, it was for birth. And I received a bunch of critique and um, some real, real like nasty uh, hate, you know, letters. And I'll never forget this one. And I had mentored her in LA. She was a doula in LA. She wrote me this message that said, to police a space based on genitalia is not only toxic, but it is hateful violence. And I saw that and I was like, huh? (laughs) What? (laughs) What? (laughs) To police a space based on genitalia was hateful violence, which I'm sure your listeners are hearing what is written into that sentence, which is, women do not deserve women-only spaces. That was kind of a new level of like, that was someone I knew who was like, I'm not going to be a part of what you're doing because of that it's women-only. So that was when I knew like, oh, that's funky. Things have changed. The climate's a little different. And it's my first time doing something like on a virtual global level and not just serving our community, you know, like person to person. And so there was a whole debacle in the, in the Facebook chat room very, very quickly. And it was a big group. It had, you know, many thousands of women in it. And very quickly this came up and it was like a total breakdown and a lot of nastiness um, around this idea of men give birth. And I reached out to Yolanda and said, I need some help on this because up until now, I carried around the uninvestigated thought or belief or whatever, because it was fed to me, which was, um, it doesn't take anything away from me to say men give birth. Sure. We all know it's a female, but if for whatever reason she wants to play pretend and call herself a man and have a baby, sure. I'll play with you. I don't think I ever had such cognitive dissonance that I was actually believing it was a man. I mean, I can pretty confidently say that's, that's not the case, but I was willing to at least in theory play pretend for their comfort, which is essentially what they're asking us to do. And, and what trans activists are asking us to do is play pretend. And yeah, so I kind of was, was held up there like, sure, why not? Sure. It doesn't take anything away from me. And then Yolanda really helped be like, hold up, <laughs> let me just break this down of how it absolutely does. Um, and, and the kind of the long view of where this is going. And it was really in that, in her willingness to untangle that for me, that helped me see it bigger than like an individual person. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is one of the main kind of rebuttals, I think, against uh, radical feminists is the why are you living in scarcity mindset? You know, there's there's plenty of space for everyone, you know. The, the, okay, the, <laughs> go take some. Yeah, you could benefit from having a man in your space. That That is the reaction I got when I was in the fertility awareness program that I got kicked out of. At one point, I posed the question to our WhatsApp group, our cohort, and I said, what would you think if a man wanted to come into our space? Just a man, not even a man who identifies as a woman, but just a man. And they were like, absolutely, bring him in. And I was just like, really, this is also a women's circle. Like we've been sharing intimate details of our personal life, of our abortions, our pregnancies, our financial situation. I mean, are you saying that you would say all those same things with a man here? Absolutely not. And so it's unbelievable to me the lengths that women will go to prove this ideology, right? To say things that I I really think that most women don't believe, such as the woman in the WhatsApp group who wants, who says, yeah, totally men here. That would be great. Well, but I think there's a distinction between they're not necessarily saying, I would say all the same things. What I hear is it's just okay that I would modify my behavior to accommodate someone else's feelings. Cause that's really what it is. You know, women aren't going to say the same stuff. And I think that would be, you know, probably pretty hard to argue because, you know, you can't really deny the intimacy and safety of being with just women of talking about your vaginal discharge and stuff like that. Right. However, 
what I hear in that and what I've seen is just that, and it's okay, I'm happy to share a space that would limit what I can say. And that's really what is like, I feel like one of the missing, many missing pieces, you know, to this. It's not a one for one. I have not talked with a lot of women who defend the right to have men in these spaces who think it would be the exact same space. It's more that whatever space it would be is more important, largely based on the principles of radical inclusion and not ever hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this kind of like, I mean, nonsense, you know, like totally, ultimately, I think self-deprecating lens, you know, that everyone deserves equal everything, 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 you know, but at what cost? And that's where the analysis gets like, you know, frozen over because at what cost? Right. And it's sad. I think also, you know, women, I I can only assume that women who are willing to allow men in, in our spaces what that says to me or what that makes me think is, oh, I guess you haven't really gotten to see what it's like in a woman only space, right? Because why would we? We're a fractured, you know, sisterhood and there aren't a lot of female only spaces where you are like howling naked by the fire and, and talking about your vaginal discharge. And so if you don't know what you're giving up and you haven't spent your life, like I've been thankfully able to spend my life in women only spaces and benefiting and seeing what that intimacy is like, I would fight to my death for that to continue. It's a non-negotiable. It's not because I hate men. It doesn't equal that, you know? So I think this conversation often is like fighting against two totally different reference points because someone who'd willingly give that up couldn't, possibly have known what it's like, you know, and seeing the value in that. And for women like us, we do know what that's like, and we have seen the value in it. And it's worth saying no, and it's worth protecting, and it's worth staking claim to. And, and it doesn't equal that it's against anything. And that, that's where I think this conversation often can be very, very immature to have a space equals hurting someone's feelings like get over yourself it's insane but women can't have anything yeah and then one step further not only are you hurting someone but you would then be held responsible for their self-harm totally and and then suicide that's the line that i was given in the role play that kind of peaked my exit Uh from uh, the fertility awareness program, right? The idea that that also that, that we've come so far, that women have come so far that we can afford to make sacrifices for middle-aged white men who are demanding access to, you know, women's bathrooms and locker rooms and, and women's spaces and circles, um, including, you know, doula trainings and midwifery programs as well. So what I hear from that woman in the WhatsApp group, you know, saying that we would benefit is, again, I think deferring to the idea that this minority oppressed population has something for us to learn, that, that we somehow be enlightened, right? Because there's, there's such a... A kind of a hyper sensitivity and focus when there is a trans identified person in the room. That's been my experience in women's spaces that have included men, that there is a kind of fawning and almost even to go farther to kind of indulge a sense of curiosity and learning from the man who's pretending to be a woman in regards to like makeup and fashion. Oh my God. No, serious. I'm, I'm dead serious. I was. I don't know if I told you this, but but a couple of years ago, I was. Uh, I had a membership to a, a very like trendy, all women's co working space in New York City, and they had locations all over the country, and they were actually sued by men's rights activist groups yeah. for being only for women. But the irony is that they actually let men in as long as they identified as women. And they would have these like celebrity self-declared women in the space. It must like feel nice for these women to not feel at the bottom of the, of the barrel for once after 10,000 years of 
of patriarchy. Like maybe it, it's a clamoring for a sense of power, but it's all fake. It's a woke, you know, competition around, I mean, we hear this a lot, right? Of that trans people are the most oppressed, the most. That's an absurd, such an idiotic claim. It's insane. Anyone who says that automatically is revealing that they understand nothing about female oppression around the world. They, they understand nothing. So it's a non-starter. Like, I wouldn't even be able to talk to somebody who says that. Because not only is it factually untrue, but it is so deranged and such a uh, complete ignorance. Yeah, to- I want to say it's almost a, I, I don't usually use the word privilege, but it, it must be evidence of some kind of privilege to have never even heard about foot binding or bride burnings. Yeah, it's or, 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 you know, child sex trafficking in the US. I mean, I mean, it, it, that's the other thing. I mean, you're familiar with the tools that I, that I work with and all of this stuff is seeing other people as victims and getting off on some sense of, you know, being the hero. And it's just not that interesting to me. It's, it doesn't feel um, fun anymore. I've done plenty of it. I'm not acting like I haven't spent a lot of time there, especially in my birth work, but when you actually learn how to be in relationship in a non-hierarchical way, you know, and, and that nobody needs to be saved and that you don't have to see other people as victims, meaning, you know, at the effect of their life. And you actually choose to exalt the people in your life in their highest power. And it's so much more fun and it's so much more uh, interesting, really to play in that kind of an arena. So all of this, you know, all of this stuff, really, the the trans activists who are literally playing the hero to save, you know, the poor person, I don't really find it that interesting. I mean, obviously what's interesting is the impact that that has on everything, right? Which is, I guess, what your channel is about. Like that is interesting, that that the willingness that women have to continue decentering themselves in women's issues, it's quite, it's quite head scratchy. I love the tools and I have definitely, you know, have been shifting out of the hero role and kind of victim consciousness. And at the same time, being in reality that we are part of the oppressed sex class, that we have an oppressor sex class is really, I think, important to know that we haven't moved beyond that, you know, and I think the the kind of equality narrative makes us believe that not only have we gotten to a point of resolution as women, which is clearly not true because as you know, there's a generation of women cutting off their breasts, you know, as the, you know, ultimate kind of act of self-harm and that, yeah, this idea that we are somehow now resourced enough to divert attention away from our very specific issues, like what's happening in birth, for example, is is absurd. I just had a radical feminist on my podcast, and she's an incredible woman. Her name's Dominique Christina. And she said it, I thought she just said it really, really well in the podcast. We were talking about these issues. And she said, I just learned how to talk about my period. And now I'm not supposed to. <laughs> like, I just got the confidence and overcame all the trauma and all of the oppression that I can finally talk about the blood that comes out of my body. You know, and like that really, really stood out to me. And it's exactly what you're saying. Like, we are barely getting there for those of us who even are to carve out these spaces and to have these conversations. And yeah, it's really, it's really sad. But I think really the the point to my mind is like return to how I choose to live. And it is kind of a, a dichotomy because yes, female oppression is very real. Absolutely. I've learned a lot about it. I care a lot about it. I talk a lot about it. And I don't personally feel at the effect of it. And so there's that.
you know, like I'm living the life that I want. And that doesn't mean that um, I'm not uncomfortable with male attention or like those subtle things. You know, I'm not acting like I'm totally other than if I just hide in my house, (laughs) totally like outside of it. But, um, you know, like how do we switch? How do we take responsibility and switch out of this uh, consciousness where we are constantly feeling victimized by patriarchy? How do we co-create a reality we want to see and hold awareness for where we're at? You know, and that's, I think that's kind of the dance that that can feel kind of complicated. But the answer is definitely not to erase women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> wondering. <laughs> yeah, I've I found, you know, I think what was really, really crucial for me in finding you and finding the other women in reverse society was to have a kind of landing pad, um, other women to talk through this stuff about. Yeah. And even with that, I felt like I had to do so much digging and research and you know, silencing too, because I was, I was grappling with, with what I was coming into because it is really, really disturbing stuff to, to contemplate. Yeah. Yeah. I think even the step before where you are, you know, putting energy towards this new paradigm, so many women are in this in between of, I think where I was of not knowing how to be good, like what, what that means, how to honor the, the voice that's saying, you know, I know that only women give birth, but if I say so, I might lose my friend, not might, probably will lose some of your friends or lose a client or um, like living in a state of fear without the clarity, without someone sitting there and kind of untangling and just giving a basic kind of education as to what's going on. Because what's so interesting about your example of kind of getting those emails here and there, the virtue signaling is that so many other women simultaneously were getting those emails too, right? It wasn't this kind of individualized event. And, you know, in the group series, we have women from Iran, Argentina, Colombia, Canada, like, I also at one point thought that this was just, at one point I thought it might be specific to New York City, really seriously. I mean, I was so kind of in the details, the personal experience of what was happening. It was so hard to contemplate or fathom that this was happening on a global scale. And so I think also what you were speaking to earlier was a kind of preference that people were expressing to you at the beginning, right? It wasn't you have to do this or you will lose funding for your nonprofit, right? It wasn't to the extreme that it is today. And yeah, we see this with pronouns too, right? It used to be preferred. It used to be a courtesy that you might afford someone if you were interested in playing pretend. And now, you know, I think in certain provinces in Canada, you can actually be criminally charged for misgendering someone. And I think actually there are similar laws in place in New York state and California. I don't know how often they're actually enforced, but, but they are, they are there. And, and to do what you're doing, I mean, your company is seen as radical for a number of reasons, but, but the fact that you have not capitulated to the mob, I really don't know any company that has been as successful as yours that hasn't capitulated. And, and so I, I, I hope that women listening who have big followings and companies are really listening to that, that capitulating to the mob and staying silent, you know, it-, it Good luck. It sucks and you'll yeah. never be right. I mean, I, you know, like, you know, my, my, you know, my fertility awareness teacher training saga, it's like, you know, the, the desire to kind of concede in that way, it, it doesn't work because there's no, the, the, um, the goalpost is always moving, right? There's no destination with being PC. It's always moving. It's always evolving. So you could maybe do the right thing in, you know, in December, but come January, there's going to be a whole nother set of rules. And if you don't change, you know, then you're not. Yeah, right. I mean, that's for like week 
people. Like that's for people who don't know who they are and don't think they write their own rules, you know? So obviously there's a lot of those people, but yeah, I mean, I don't have a strong good girl. That's just never been like in the driver's seat for me. Things are too fucked up to waste my time appeasing like assholes. Like it doesn't even, and like trying to make friends, like it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't even ring like a logical formula. I do remember when I used to teach uh, full spectrum doula like trainings for the nonprofit that I, that I did. And um, I remember the first time that someone was like, let's introduce with our pronouns. And it was the first time anyone had said that. And I looked around the room and I knew everyone in the room. And I was like, huh? We're clearly all women. This is an abortion training. What? And I said something because it was my training. I was like, you're welcome to do whatever you want, but we're clearly all women. And it was right at the start where that was like not allowed to be said because I remember saying it, we were all in my living room. And I remember saying that and being like, what the fuck is happening? Like, is it, why does it seem weird that I just said we're clearly all women? Because we're clearly all women. And then I remember this now, people went around and was like, I identify as a her and 100% of the women were women identifying women. And I was like, this, it's really stupid. This is this doesn't make any sense. This is not a group of trans people. This is not a group of trans people. And let me be clear, if it was a group of trans people, sure. Say what you want. Whatever. Whatever. That's your space to run. Is not not spaces I hang out in. It was a group of women who identified as women. Anyway, um yes, I have not capitulated and have no intention to. But at the end of the day, it's like you're only accountable to yourself. And if you don't get that, you're probably not going to get a lot done. Honestly, like you're not a leader, you know, and and if you don't have a strong sense of self, which is okay, like people are where they are, but if you don't have a strong sense of self, you've got some work to do and that's okay. Like, that's why we're here. That's why we're on this planet. That's why we're alive right now. You've got some work to do. We all have work to do. But I get it, you know, it's a state of survival where when we are essentially under-resourced, you know, when we are trying to generate all of our security and control and approval from outside of ourselves, you will do what you need to do to fit in. And I'm not exactly sure what specifically, I mean, it's just been a lifelong journey for me of, of doing a lot of investigation and taking a lot of risks and spending a lot of time with my mind and with like who I want to be and what kind of vision, you know, you know, what kind of life do I want to live? How do I want to be spoken of, you know, on my deathbed? And how do I want my grandchildren to like know of me, you know? And, and I think these are important, like, who am I becoming as an elder? You know, these are important questions to contend with, you know, to find your sense of self. And at the end of the day, yeah, we are really only accountable to ourselves. So if I'm going to bed and I'm like good and I'm in congruence with um, myself and my spirit and my work. I'm good. And, and also I think at a really young age, I realized because I've always been the challenger and I've always, yeah, I've always been the one kind of like pushing back and being like, that doesn't make sense, you know, like going to Catholic school or whatever. And I have experienced a cost to that, you know, and I got in trouble a lot and I, I didn't have friends when I was a kid for, for a time period, which was, you know, really painful. And, I felt misunderstood a lot. But on the other side of all of that work, really learning how to generate approval, security, control within yourself, within myself, um, has freed me. And it's really given me a clarity to what I'm doing and, and to my sense of self and not just isolated self like connectivity to all you know and and really seeing how I am here for this planet and how this planet is here for me um so I guess I realized at a really young age that no woman is gonna do anything great and not be hated 
no woman is going to make waves and not have other groups of women like standing there on the sidelines being like, what a bitch, (laughs) you know, like it's just going to happen because that's where we're at until we're not. And, and just to kind of like, let that be okay. And, and not necessarily see it as a problem. I remember the first time I talked about free birth at a doula meet and greet in LA a really long time ago. And a couple of doulas literally got up and sat on the other side of the table and I was like, oh, it's like that. Okay, interesting. But I have such a clear sense of my own values and morals and, and my own feminism. And, and it's, not, it's not even, I mean, to some degree, it's self-righteous, sure. But also, it's just mine. And I, I don't expect anyone else to see it the way that I see it. And I'm here for women. And I think women are the answer. You know, I want to see a world where women are centered. I trust women. Um, I particularly trust mothers and, and it makes biological sense, you know, and it, from a survival sense that, that women and mothers and girls would be centered and, and supported and, and, you know, all of the things and everything I've ever learned, which has been quite extensive about when a girl gets a chance <laughs> you know, in, in a otherwise oppressive community or culture, how the whole community thrives. And you don't see that with boys. That really strikes me. And, and I've learned a lot about it. And I've studied a lot of, you know, female oppression around the world and and stories of where that's been shifted. And when girls have gotten a chance for education or jobs or um, leaving their villages or, or, you know, a fistula surgery. I mean, just, just something that is different than, than kind of their predetermined, you know, destiny in these cultures or communities. And that what we repeatedly see unsurprisingly is that the girls become women who come back and take care of their communities. They've done these incredible studies where they've tracked the same communities of families that make the same amount of money. And when a man runs the household money, versus when a woman runs the household. Uh, throughout India, they did one by, um, we can put it in the, in the show notes, it's in a TED talk by um, the people who wrote Half the Sky. And so what they show across the board is that when the men are running the household, less of the children are in school, less of the homes have electricity, more money is being sent on prostitutes and tobacco and alcohol. And then you take the exact same income and a woman runs the household and all of the children are in school. They have electricity. The woman will often still give the husband a a small stipend for prostitutes, tobacco and alcohol, but it'll just be a little bit instead of half of the money. Anyway, so they, they do all these cool, you know, pie charts where you can see that that across the board when women run the, the finances for the home, children live longer, you know, they're higher education, um, they have less health issues, um, you know, all the stuff that you would kind of, that's kind of would be unsurprising to learn about. Yeah, and that I learned about that stuff a lot when I was 17, 18, 19, 20, and yeah, all through my early 20s and was like, okay interesting so this is what it's about and what would it look like to center women what would it feel like in my life to center myself like whoa that's a that's a crazy idea you know in this world that I certainly didn't grow up with a mother who centers herself and what does that mean and what does that feel like in in a day-to-day practice you know how do I do that how do I create a relationship around that and I'm just figuring it out and it's going really well (laughs) You know, so there's, you know, back to the capitulation piece, like there's no reality where you can do both. If you're going to give up your sense of self and silence yourself and fucking betray yourself so that you can fit in with a crowd that ultimately doesn't even align with who you want to become, you know, I mean, you got to get right with that, but it really is all based on your priorities. And my priority is, is feminism and truth and, you know, showing women that, that we can be here and that we get to be here and that the more of us that carve out space for ourselves and and use our voice, you know, the better the world is. And so, you know, truly from a space of love, like not, it's not really about going against anything. Um, But when women rise, everybody does better. So I could not wrap my head around 
forgetting that, you know, once you kind of touch the holy grail of, of like what a healed woman can do for the world. Yeah, it's kind of the center of everything. Wow. Yeah, the self-betrayal, kind of living in that space. I mean, and, you know, often the, the, the conversation is the cost of speaking up rather than the cost of staying silent. Staying silent. And, you know, it, it's interesting that the model of kind of inclusivity the women who kind of go along with inclusivity or the organizations that go along with it are actually mimicking the behavior of what they're seeing, which is the ultimate self-betrayal, which is to say, my body is not my home. My body is wrong. I need to be fixed. I am a problem until I become the vision of myself in my mind, which is completely unattainable, you know, in a a kind of like robotic machine-like sense. Like you said, it is, it's, um, it's unusual to kind of, and for you, it, it's the default. Like you knew that you couldn't do that, that you couldn't self-betray. But I think like the models, like our, most of our mothers have not set that. Well, I mean, I dabbled, like, I'm not going to act like I've never betrayed myself. Like I was in an abusive relationship, you know, for three years or something like that was a pretty big betrayal to myself. And I, I really saw the cost of it, you know, and, and, and I'm really grateful for kind of testing that darkness because when I emerged from it, I was like, Oh yeah, I can't do that again. Like that was really bad. I really lost my sense of self. I really got turned upside down and like, I can't do that again. I don't want to do that again. Yeah. So certainly, I mean, not that I haven't, haven't dabbled, but you know, it gets easier and easier the more you, the more you commit to it. I think the other big thing to kind of like chew on and digest and come to know is that true liberation can only come from within, right? So, so with this trans ideology stuff, the fact that their existence is based on us changing how we think, speak, or feel shows the uh, impermanence of it. It shows the, the unsustainability of it. You do you. If you want to walk around and use language that's different than me, I couldn't care less. Do it. But if your very existence is dependent on me also saying it when it's not real for me, that really strikes me. You know, because I think about like with religion, I don't agree with (laughs) the fundamental, you know, tenets of, let's say, Christianity. But no one's calling me Christian phobic. I don't think there's an invisible guy in the sky. I don't pray to a man who maybe was alive on this planet at some point a really long time ago. That doesn't ring relevant for me. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true that there's providence and that there's a masculine Lord, okay? That doesn't make me Christian phobic. I'm not afraid of people who are Christian. You do you. That's your operating system. That's the framework that your spirituality makes sense through. Awesome. It doesn't make sense for me. And it both gets to be here together. Does not make me afraid of you. Right? So it's this really like new thing. I think it's really kind of, you know, I think this will continue to shift over the years, but even this very concept that we would be labeled transphobic for not agreeing with how they see the world it actually doesn't make any sense. It's just a different viewpoint. And, and, and I'm so grateful you're doing this YouTube channel because the bottom line is when there's anything in our lives that we are not supposed to speak on or we are not supposed to disagree with, with that's a really red flag that more conversation needs to be had, right? So these one narratives, we see it with BLM, we see it with politics, we see it you know, with this trans ideology stuff. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff with COVID, you know, we see it with all of, and it's kind of the same framework getting placed onto these different topics, really, you know, which is that if you're not in alignment with the one narrative that's allowed in this space, you're dangerous, you know, and this is not new, right? This is a tale as old as time. It just feels really, um, charged up because we are at the point in our lives right now where we are becoming really aware of all of this 
which has always been a tale as old as time, you know, but this is our time right now to be inside this tale, which is COVID and BLM and trans ideology, you know, and birth outside the system. And this is our radicality and, and our voice around these issues. But, you know, they've always been here and women have always been navigating these arenas where they're supposed to be silent and where there's real social risk to not being. So who do you want to be is really like what it comes down to. It's so immature that to question something is hateful. It's like, like, I don't feel hateful at all. I don't feel hateful at all. If some female bodied person wants to, for whatever reasons, wants to do their thing and call themselves something else and have a baby and call it something else. And like, that's their spiritual journey, you know, whatever. It literally doesn't affect me individually like that. But the second that I'm supposed to agree that men give birth, when that doesn't sync up with how I see the world and what feels true to me, and to question that or to go, oh, no, 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 no. And that that's not allowed to both be here together and that it somehow equals hate or violence. I mean, people message me all the time. You're probably getting this stuff too. You using the word mother is literally killing trans people. So right off the bat, that's a stupid thing to say. Because it's, it makes no sense. It's a stupid thing to say that my use of the word mother could possibly kill anyone or anything. That's not how speech works, right? Which really is why I take this stuff lighter and lighter as the years go on, because it's so absurd. It doesn't even really have a place in my brain, which is not to, to say that someone on a journey with their own gender constructs and pushing the boundaries and trying out different stuff and p- trying on, you know, how they might want to identify differently. Like, I don't really feel any negative stuff about that. Like, yeah, explore, try things on, whatever. Just don't ask me to change anything about myself because <laughs> I'm doing me, you know, get out of my business and your existence does not need to be validated by me validate yourself right i mean we're all trying to validate ourselves over here me and isabella you know that's the real freedom right it's like uh, the whole narrative is that you need to validate us but when we ask to recognize and like women as a sex class it's like no no sir I really don't believe that the two can coexist. I'm at the point where if, if me saying your son has a penis is going to like trigger you, it's like, I mean, I think it's just gone. So, so it's because it, it could coexist like in a mature space two people can be triggered and have different framework for reality and coexist. Like they could, it's possible, right? Like we see this around the world. I know Muslims and and Sikhs and Hindus that are all friends, like they can coexist. It's the agenda and the need for you to see it my way where we lose everything. So that's kind of my whole point is that I have yet to interact with certainly trans activists who are mature enough to let this coexist in any way. I know many, many, many radical feminists who can do it, but, you know, I think it's a newer thing and and it's like all charged up and feels really purposeful. And it's obviously at a, at a like embarrassing cost to women. So I don't know, they're just such traitors and it's such cognitive dissonance it actually does, it's so absurd, it's actually uninteresting. One of the things that your listeners are going to realize is the absurdity of this, which in a way, again, is like the freedom, like exposing this stuff instead of getting accidentally sucked into it, because it is easier 
to take it a little lighter and to not, yeah, just to not take it so seriously because of course I'm not going to change how I speak. Of course I'm not going to capitulate to the mob. Every hate thing I get or death threat I get only further devotes me to being out in the world in my truth. It's proof of why we have to be doing this. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I've been trying on something that my friend Alex does, who is exposing the the kind of the gender clinics all over, primarily North, North America that are involved in malpractice cases with um, prescribing puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones to minors. Her approach is to say to someone who wants to engage on the topic, who is kind of a devout subscribes to transgender ideology is to say, if you're going to pretend not to know the difference between a man and a woman, then there's no conversation here. Right. And I, and I love that because it, it highlights the absurd of it. And it puts the, the kind of the onus on the other person to reflect and say, well, well, do I know? Well, I, I guess I do know the difference between a man and a woman. Like it's almost like a, they're forced to, almost admit the absurdity of it. I think that the people that I've talked to that I don't really engage anymore, but I I feel like maybe my sense has been that they're coming from this place where it's really creative. Mm. It's a liberal event, right? Because liberal, but this is the whole difference between liberals and radicals, you know, that, that liberals for liberals um, issues are, are like mental events. It's like a postmodernist kind of thing to to like play with and be creative rather than we're all just like cages that we're boxed into, you know. So it's like really creative to be like your lady stick, and it could just be anything you want. And like how creative that's been the sense that I've gotten. Where okay, that's fine, whatever, sure, be creative, but to deny. (laughs) <laughs> the rest of it, it really does just, yeah, it's so absurd. Yeah. Like deny, like what, like, as you say, like what is. Yeah. All suffering comes from not accepting what is. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can call your penis a lady stick, but it's still a penis. Like it still functions the same way. It still comes with all the same stuff as the other people who call it a penis. Like it doesn't actually matter if you want to call it something else. Men have lots of different names for their penises. That, sure, you can get creative on, but to actually deny biological reality and the cost of that denial is so um, enormous. Like The cost of that is so enormous. And again, I do think this goes back to what I said at the beginning that I can only assume that women who fight for their own erasure have not yet seen the value and the magic of women-only spaces held in good faith and sisterhood. If you know what that's like, that's the center of your life. Yeah. So well said. And I think that really is the kind of medicine for the women, for the detransitioned women who are coming out of this kind of years off their life, you you know, who never had that kind of holding, who never had that honoring of of rites of passages. You know, I think really that, right, all, all women need that medicine to kind of come back to ourselves and particularly thinking a lot about this with the, the detransitioned women and, and what and how potentially, you know, I think kind of grounding and um, embodied that that medicine can can be. So and look, it doesn't like it doesn't really feel that safe to be a woman. Yeah. You know, like it's we all have to contend with the same things. That's what Yolanda says a lot. Like it's not that special that someone feels unsafe in their female body. It's just, it's not that special. We all have to contend with that. Most of us have been raped. Most of us have been sexually assaulted. Most of us have been physically abused. Most of us have been, probably all of us have been harassed, you know, by the male sex, you know, constantly. So 
it's just not that unique. And in a way that actually helps me feel a lot more love, you know, towards, you know, women going through that because it just doesn't feel that special. Like most women have wanted to opt out of the misogyny that we're facing, you know, and there's lots of ways to, to attempt that. But I do think it's an enormous like bypass to actually like, like the most feminist thing a, a woman can do is be a woman that really is like at the center. Like don't opt out of womanhood. Don't try to, and then get in an argument when we say you can't really do that. Say this is woman too. Wear your shaved head in your cargo shorts and say that's woman too. You know, like it's all woman. If you are a woman, everything you can't get out of it. And therefore everything you do is womanhood. That is so fucking beautiful. And that's what we need to see. You're not not non-binary because you don't like pink. You're not non-binary. You're not not a girl or a woman because you like to kind of hide your breasts, you know, because you have big breasts and men are constantly looking at them. That doesn't make you less of a woman or that you, you, you know, want to be a construction worker like that's just woman too and that's really like the only way is like we have to get so inside of our womanhood you know not try to escape it though I understand why one would want to try to escape it I think the other piece that we kind of have to mention here is that in the you know LGBT communities there's a real social status when you self-declare the opposite gender. So I've, I've known, you know, many butch lesbians who have been constantly harassed and asked, when are you going to transition? When are you going to come out as a man? And, and I've talked to quite a few of them about what it feels like to essentially be at the bottom of the social ladder and that little um like dangling carrot that if you just said you were a dude you would get a completely different position in your community i mean many butch lesbians have have shared this with me over the years and i think that 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 you know, kind of has to be said, right? Like the the kind of Im importance and when a girl comes out as, as non-binary or as trans and all of her friends are like, ooh, what's that? And it has this whole kind of social importance to it. And she, oh, she's so brave or they're so brave and there's this bravery associated to it. And, you know, it kind of like throws the whole household for a spin and, and it's a way to push boundaries. And, you know, it, obviously we see this in really young social arenas and, and that comes with great cost too, if, if the parents are, you know, encouraged to support it with hormones and, and everything else. But that always has kind of stood out to me of, you know, that that dangling carrot yeah of the social status and and you know these butch lesbians have been like i'm at the bottom of the barrel i'm not like interesting and people assume when they meet me that i'm definitely either a they or a man identified and when i'm not you can even see the disappointment in their eyes it's like oh shit okay which again goes back to my earlier point of like, what could it look like if we all really got inside our womanhood and let the shaved head and the tomboy and the whatever, like this whole idea of oh, like social constructs are made up. Yeah, of course they are. So do something about it. So get inside your womanhood and declare that this is woman too. Yeah. That's amazing. And I have so much respect for women who go radically outside of the feminine narrative and stay in their womanhood. That is so beautiful and so important to have more reference points for what woman is. Again, I have to credit Yolanda for kind of inviting me to do this. I've really stopped using the words masculine and feminine in the last couple of years 
and just instead I use male, female. And it's really helped me kind of flag a way that I was participating in gendered stereotypes, you know? And it, I really notice it now when, when other women use masculine and feminine. Like just yesterday, someone was like, you know, and then we could add some like really masculine energy and organize the whole thing. And I was like, huh, interesting. Because if you take that off your plate, I've taken those two words off of my plate for the last couple of years. It's helped me get into this, like it's all woman. Like if I can't get out of my woman and I let go of this feminine and masculine idea and I just know that everything I'm doing is woman, right? So all of my fire, all of my organizational skills, all of my boss, you know, energy, all of my leadership, that's all woman because I'm a woman, <laughs> period. We don't need to make it more complicated than that. You know, like with, with men, like someone the other day said about her husband, like he has a really feminine side. And I said, tell me what that means. And she said, um, he's really willing to feel his feelings. And sometimes he cries. And I said, sweetheart, that's man. That's him being a man because he's a man, period. That's just him being a fucking human. Right. Like these are these are subtle things in our own language, even as feminists, that I think we really need to catch. And so, yeah, I think it was Yolanda who was like, just don't even say those words and see what happens. See what else is there for you to describe something. It's really taught me a lot. I had a conversation with a detransitioned woman named Willow, and she she described her mom as um, a masculine woman. And I had the exact same prodding question which was what do you mean by masculine woman and it turns out what she meant actually is that her mom didn't subscribe to harmful gender stereotypes hmm. her mom wore t-shirts and pants and didn't wear makeup and you're right that doesn't make her a masculine woman that's just woman. a woman that's just a woman right? Who hasn't been indoctrinated with like social conditioning to like present like a Barbie, you know, I don't really relate to femininity. And I, I've never been particularly attracted to speaking to the divine feminine and the divine masculine, because I find it actually detracts from yeah. what we are trying to get done now, which is to focus on material reality. Like, well, it's just another flavor of doing the same thing. It's just, it's categorizing behaviors and feelings and qualities through yeah. a gendered lens. So it's the opposite of, right. Yeah. Everything that we're trying to, to talk about, it can be a wider spectrum. A man could wear a dress and makeup and he's still a man. Absolutely. Yeah. It's and the only, and it's only our own like socialization that we would say, oh, that's feminine. It's just because makeup's been classified as feminine. But, and this is where I think the, the liberal, like people are trying to go where it's like so creative that you could just like try something else on and it's only our own limitations of, of, of thinking. And I like, I get the attempt of like, it is true. Like, I remember seeing this guy one time wearing nail polish and was in like tight green pants. And I had the thought, oh, he's really femme. But then I caught it and was like, why? He's just a dude wearing, it doesn't have, it could be actually meaningless, you know? And I get that like in the society, it's all about like fetishizing, you know, womanhood and playing womanhood and all of that. But like zooming way, way, way out from a more neutral standpoint, it's actually nothing. It's just a man wearing nail polish. Like, you know, what's a fact? The fact is he's wearing tight green pants. The story we're making up is that that's feminine and that, you know, he's probably gay or whatever. Our, so that's our socialization. Those are the stories we're making up. And that's part of why it's fun, right? Because they're pushing boundaries and they're, they're getting attention and they're playing with a different thing than how they were raised up to, you know, to be. And I get that that's all playful and explorative but there's an obvious line that has been long since crossed. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, radical feminists and, and trans rights activists have their own idea of how to challenge 
things. And I think that's, that's the difference like that, that, that we don't see that as challenging as an effective challenge of liberating men and women from like the prison that is gender, right? It, it actually reinforces exactly all of that. And so, but this is again, why it goes back to, it is our own internal work. I was called a tomboy growing up and you know, now I would have been called a boy. <laughs> You know, I wanted my name to be Ryan. I did not identify as a boy because that's absurd since I was clearly a female, but I played sports. I didn't like pink. You know, I was, I was labeled a tomboy, which I felt kind of proud of. And then I, you know, went through puberty and lived on my own at a really young age and started to really like, I discovered dancing and I like, fell in love with my body. And I started to, um, from a playful standpoint, play with how I looked and would dye my hair or, you know, got some tattoos and just started to play with myself. It wasn't about, it, it didn't ever have this like lens of exploring my feminine side. And so I guess what I'm bringing up is that lots of people have given me the feedback that I'm very masculine. And so I say, why? Oh, cause you're really bossy. You're really firm. You make a lot of money, right? So all they're doing is revealing their own limitations of how they see women and what women are capable of. And when a woman steps outside of what an individual person's framework is for a woman, then what's the other choice, right? Then it must be masculine. But it's all so um, small. Yeah, like we are whole people who possess, we are infinite, right? Who possess all of it. Whatever, Whatever quality I have, you know, qualities that I have are all within the context of my female biology, period. Which actually is the freedom. That is how we get over the social constructs. I don't feel limited, especially because I don't give a fuck what anyone else thinks of me. So if you want to think that something I'm doing is masculine, it literally makes no difference to me. It, it holds no weight because I am whole. And that's like the whole fucking point really is to, to get whole so that we can be free. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website, whosebodyisit.com.